Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this week by Ministry of Supply and Blue Apron. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Jason. We're back. Yes. Fortnite. We're back. <laughs> We're back. Still, still spinning around the sun, uh-huh. hurtling through space. It's true. The the uh, as presumably Neil deGrasse Tyson's Twitter account told everybody, because I'm sure he did this. Because although I love that guy, he is also totally a killjoy. Uh, just because we changed into 2017, uh, you know, nothing happened astronomically. You just keep moving around the sun. Yeah. See. So much for fun. <laughs> I'm actually seeing him speak in a couple of weeks. He's on some sort of tour, and I have huh. a ticket when he comes to Memphis. So I'll be sure uh, to share that on the show, the, see the, how it goes. Why are you such a killjoy? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to ask him. If, if there's Q&A, be like, hey, Jason Snell says you're a real bummer. Yeah. Well, he's a scientific educator. I just, you know, again, also kind of a killjoy. That, that's like, are you enjoying this thing that is not doesn't have its basis in scientific fact? Well... Let me crush it for you. Yeah, that's right. That's fine. It's fine. Okay. So we have some pre-flight checklist stuff to get to before we get to our Mm -hmm. big topic this week. And we're going to start with our friend, uh, everyone's friend, really, Osiris Rex. For some reason, I just find it a very friendly spacecraft. You really love this. It's it's because it's Rex, right? It's because it's like a little dog spaceship, you think? Yeah. Do you? And also, it's going to shoot nitrogen out. If if I had to have you draw Osiris Rex, would you draw like a little space dog with a helmet? Is that what you would draw? It would just be hearts and smiley faces. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> All right, it's nit- it's expelling nitrogen. Is that is is it doing the the expulsion of nitrogen now? Is that what's happening? Not yet. All right, uh, not yet. It but is that, just, that is what uh, has captured your fancy, right? Is that it's gonna yes. it's gonna basically blow on the surface of an asteroid? It's like a space kiss, I guess. I'm in a weird mood today. Let's just. Uh... I think it's more of a space fart. But anyway, what <laughs> what is Osiris Rex doing right now? Uh, I don't know. So they are uh, they executed their first trajectory change um so the first time they uh fired the main engine since launch or i guess maybe ever um and uh so yeah it's just kind of a check-in that they are on track to do what they're supposed to do and i don't know i always find the period of time between the launch of a mission and when the mission actually starts just really interesting because it's easy not to think about it right for like months at a time but it's hurtling through space really fast i mean how long was the new horizons on its way to the Pluto system it was like it was years and years Uh, so we don't have that long to wait for Osiris Rex, but um, I think it's interesting, too, to think about this in light of Juno, where they've had a lot of problems with these sort of maneuvers they have to make to change its flight path and how something as simple as a as a short burn to adjust something can be can become a problem. And now Juno's kind of in this weird uh, in-between state where it's not really in the orbit it's supposed to be in, but it's still doing science. So it was... I've just come to really appreciate this time in a mission for some reason, and uh, Osiris Rex is uh, as uh, doing what it's supposed to do, and it is still on uh, on target to reach the asteroid uh, Bennu in the fall of 2018. So we have you have a little while for me to be excited about this. No, it's good. That, that's good. We're going going to. We talked about it. I think last time or two times ago. It's it, um, you know going to an asteroid. Gonna gonna get some stuff. It's great. Yep. Uh, um, the the it's funny that you mentioned the cruising part of it. I, I we actually had a listener uh, link a couple listeners I think linked to this uh, and, and and included us, which is that the A16Z podcast 
uh, did an episode about New Horizons that's basically talking to it's a, and it's about a very specific mission on New Horizons, but it also talks more broadly about like the business of transmitting data back and forth and also building experiments and 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 working on like the computer processing power on a space probe. And that was a really great podcast. But uh, since you mentioned New Horizons, I thought I'd mention it now that 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 is I really enjoyed listening to it. Um, it gets a little technical, but I think in a, a super good fun way of being technical and uh and it, it is about all the challenges including the power challenge which i thought was really interesting i don't know, did you listen mm-hmm. to it i did i really enjoyed it i think they did a good job at sort of breaking it down i mean they're talking to an engineer and it, i think it could have been way more difficult to follow than it was but yeah the power right. thing was really interesting like how just how little power there is how tight all the tolerances are to make make something work that I think they had an example that there was an issue in the software and they had to like go back to the software and make it more energy efficient. Like it, all this like tiny minute changes add up to something that can make or break a mission. Yeah, it was. Uh, and I think initially they had the idea that they were going to have two processors and then it turns out they only got one processor and they had to get all this stuff that they had sort of um, – spread across two processors with a little bit of room. They had to fit it all in a single one. And they ended up like there's supposed to be a margin, you know, you're supposed to leave 20% margin for error or something like that. And in the end, they had out of a thousand blocks or whatever it was, they they had 996 of them used or something like that. It was something like they were, they were at 99, above 99% of use. And they, they basically went back and said, you can uh, waive the need for headroom or <laughs> we don't know what we're going to do. And they're like, all right, you can do it. Right. So it, yeah, a bunch of great stories. They, the, 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 pl- the power thing was interesting because they, they talk about they're using a, uh, a thermal generator for power. That's basically the uh, plutonium that decays and, and, uh, and generates heat, which uh, generates, which runs this generator. And uh, that sounds great. And he talks about in the, in there, it's a great story actually about how the only source of plutonium for the United States had a, it was, uh, had to shut down uh, because they had a technical problem, I think. And, uh, and, and it involves, you know, it's used for nuclear weapons, but it's also used for NASA. And they ended up buying plutonium from Russia because Russia wanted to get rid of its plutonium and they were concerned about where it might end up, who might end up with that plutonium. Um, and so they bought it for New Horizons and that was some of the plutonium that's on New Horizons. And the idea that the plutonium, uh, you know, the generation, it's decaying. So there's way more power when they launch it and when they're testing it than will actually be available years later when they're around Pluto. So they have to, they have to figure out the radioactive decay and all that. And this is probably worth putting another link in the show notes, which is there's a great piece from the economist about how they had to figure out about plutonium production in order to power these spacecraft, especially the ones that can't use solar panels because there's not enough sunlight that far out. And that was, uh, that piece is, I believe written by our friend Glenn Fleischman, who has been on, um, but it's the economist. So he's not bylined, but it's a really great story. So speaking of, spaceships in in cruise you know out in the blackness of space for a few years on their way to wherever they're going um that was a fun podcast and uh so thanks to everybody who sent it in yep uh while we're in uh i guess spacecraft land let's talk about cassini for a second there were some new images that were released just yesterday january 30th uh showing some really up close images of saturn's rings um, JPL said it's like a level of detail that hasn't really been captured before. And they're in, um, 
there's like four or five of them in the slideshow. And, you know, we, we talked about whatever it was, we talked about Cassini, how it, it is at the end of its mission now. And so they're doing some things that are a little bit risky. The ring grazing orbits, um, they're getting closer than they, they have before. I think the, the scale in these images, it can resolve details as small as like 550 meters across. So you look at these images and they're, they're just mesmerizing. Um, a lot like, of just like like a pair of corduroy pants or something like that. It's these little ridges. <laughs> yeah. Um. And then some of them, it's it's even more tenuous, where you're you're seeing through, but you can see like the kind of little. It's almost like a, a a super thin fog or something because the 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 material is is not as dense there. Um. And it's the. Uh. It, it sounds like the the previous best imaging was. Uh, like a decade ago and so uh they are the people who've been studying those images all this time look at these new images and are very impressed because they're they are i think what twice the resolution that they were able to get before Mm -hmm. yeah it's pretty neat and uh, i'm i'm excited about this this end of cassini's uh time at saturn even though it's going to be sad to see it go seeing these images and seeing what they're going to do is going to be exciting to watch for the next little bit yeah it's the grand finale of cassini and uh it it uh the ring grazing orbits happen now like we've been saying and then it's going to move to a new orbital phase where it will actually be going uh through the gaps in the rings that's the big uh that's the big uh, final overture before the end and that's all happening in April basically in late late April that process starts and then it ends of course with them crashing it into Saturn so that it doesn't uh, contaminate the rest of Saturn unless it smacks into something in those ring boundaries but I don't think that'll happen. <laughs> That'd be bad. Uh, NASA started to release information about the twin study. So if you remember the uh, Scott and Mark Kelly, the, the twin brothers, one spent a year on the International Space Station and one stayed here on Earth. And they use that time to see how being in space will affect a human body for that long. And when you have a, basically a duplicate here on Earth, it's, uh, it's pretty easy to see those changes. So we're starting to see some of this information um, uh, come out of, uh, of NASA. There's a, a human research program uh, based in Texas that is sort of heading this up. And uh, where they're starting is changes actually like to DNA. And I uh, slept through some of uh, high school biology, so I'm not not the expert on DNA by any means. Mm-hmm. But basically the protective caps on the end of DNA strands, kind of keep it all nice and tidy. Yep, telomeres, yep. Um, there you go. Uh, are different between the brothers now. And uh, so Scott's were longer than his brother Mark's, and they have now returned to the lengths that they were before the mission. So they elongated and now have gone back uh, to normal. And so they're trying to understand what that means, why it happens, what are, you know, long-term effects of this. Um, just really, really interesting. You, you know, you, you think, I think of things at least like um, muscle loss and spinal compression, right? Astronauts come back taller and leaner than, uh, than they were when they left. But, you know, even, you know, down all the way down to our DNA, down to things we can't see, all that stuff's affected by by being in space, and that's the challenge of um, modern using modern biology stuff, right? I mean, th- there's stuff that you could measure 
with the original astronauts, although they weren't like long duration um, until Apollo, when there was sort of more more serious long duration, and even that not like the ISS. But now we have all these other abilities, like looking at the DNA and seeing if there are uh, issues there. Now, of course, the ISS is in low Earth orbit, so it doesn't necessarily tell us uh, what what might happen to a person when they're outside of the protection of Earth's magnetic field, uh, you know, outside the radiation belts out there in, in just being... Uh, hit by radiation in space but we can't check that right now but what we can check is what happens in low earth orbit and even there there are some interesting things so um it's uh it's a fun idea i'm glad that they you know opportunity right we have identical twin astronauts and we got a guy on earth and a guy in space and we can that holds a little more of uh the data constant because they're twins um and uh, so, yeah, it's it's just a draft. I, I guess it's going to be a while before it's out. And one interesting thing that I I noticed is that the 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 brothers get to decide. Uh, they basically get to review all the things and 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 decide what gets released because they're they it's their uh, you know it's their bodies, <laughs> and right. so there's some privacy <laughs> some privacy issues there. But they they've been you know generally open to the the science of it. They just they get some oversight on the on the final version. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. When I was a kid, um, I read a novel um that from my local library in the children's section. It was a science fiction novel. It's about twins who are. I think they communicate telepathically, and so they use them as like long distance radios on space missions because because the speed of light doesn't apply to telepathy, I guess. Uh, but it really stuck with me the idea like using twins in space. And every time I hear about the twin study, I am thrown back to that novel, which it turns out is a Robert Heinlein uh, novel called Time for the Stars, which I had no idea until the last time I mentioned this book, and somebody said, "Oh, that's a Heinlein. That's actually kind of a famous." Uh, juvenile Heinlein novel, but um, <laughs> but uh, no proof that uh, the Kelly brothers can communicate telepath- telepathically mm. in space. Well, they edited that out. They don't want to share that. They, they had, <laughs> that was redacted. That's right. Why do they suppress the truth? Why? <laughs> We're gonna get to that later. Mm. <clears throat> uh, so yeah, so you know, uh, pretty pretty cool stuff there. Yeah. The the end of January. Uh, as we record this now, beginning of February is uh, a hard time for NASA. In particular, NASA has had. Uh, three crews uh, lost uh, on missions. He had the Apollo 1 fire, which actually is uh, 50 years this year. And then the Challenger, uh, 31 years, uh, where uh, astronauts were killed shortly after takeoff. And then the Columbia disaster, which will be 14 years on February 1st, where seven astronauts were killed as their shuttle uh, re-entered the atmosphere and then and then broke up. So it's this time of year is always, there's always something going on. Uh, and, and this year to mark it, and especially to mark that Apollo 1, anniversary nasa has opened a new uh, tribute at the kennedy visitor center uh, in florida uh, really focusing on on apollo one they have a lot of information a lot of relics from the mission and it's really you know i, I think i don't think many i don't know how many people now kind of understand you know what happened with that with that accident and it, it truly is heartbreaking when you dig into it there were a lot of signs uh, just like challenger columbia that had they been pay attention to it could have been um, uh, maybe uh, mitigated, but yeah, it's tough, yeah. right? It's it's tough to kind of view that in hindsight, of course. But um, uh, a nice a nice memorial has been has been opened uh, for the, the three men killed. The, 
the and they do the national uh it's like a day of remembrance for the astronauts that this time mm-hmm. of year and they 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 had that again there is a you know i found the astronaut memorial at kennedy to be really moving um I, there's a great story that the new york times did about a memorial that they do at the pad where the apollo 1 fire um took place that is a private ceremony that they seem to have every year um that uh people people can go to it apparently but it started as a private thing with the family and mm. it's not well known but the new york times wrote about it uh i think the the thing that really blew me away about it is so this was the 50th anniversary and uh betty grissom was there as she, mm. I think, is almost every year, but this, she said, this might be her last time going at fifty. Um, but you know, she, so, so, you know, Gus Grissom's widow. The idea that every year she returns to the scene of the accident for a memorial that really hit me. She's eighty nine now, um, and a bunch of NASA officials there and family members and friends. But they had people, you know, they talked to somebody from from Tokyo who came. Uh, it's uh yeah it's interesting that 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 location is still there and that uh what it is is it's not on kennedy uh property i think it's 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 at the cape but it's actually on i think the air force runs i think so i think so and so it's that there's that thing too of like who gives you access and who lets you do it but that's that's uh so it's in that it's in that big complex there's a lot of stuff at 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 cape canaveral that's not kennedy space center like when i went there and i was at the spacex group that was in the i want to say that was at a marine base but there's i mean there's multiple facilities there it is a it is a really large uh, area with a bunch of different stuff. Anyway, I was just the 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 visual of uh, Betty Grissom, you know, fifty years after her husband died, uh, coming back to that location for this memorial, um, and it's a, you know, it's a concrete block basically that has been abandoned in place, and uh, so it's kind of haunting that way too. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I agree. So we're going to move into our topic. But before we do that, Jason, do you want to tell us about our first sponsor? Sure. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Blue Apron. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes with fresh, high-quality ingredients so you can make delicious home-cooked meals. I've been using Blue Apron for more than a year. I am a happy customer of Blue Apron. And their uh, their food is great. The meat that they send, they have uh, seafood that's sourced sustainably under standards developed with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. Uh, the beef, chicken, and pork come from responsibly raised animals. Their produce is sourced from farms that practice regenerative farming. So it's good stuff, and it comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card. The ingredients are pre-portioned, so there's very little, if any, food waste. And the portion sizes are good. They're not, uh, like, ridiculously large, um, uh, which I actually really appreciate. It's it's uh, an appropriate amount of food for a meal for whether you get the sort of two-person or the four-person version. Uh, we love it a lot. I I, uh, I just made Blue Apron a couple of days ago. I made uh, uh, a panini sandwich with uh, roasted cauliflower and fresh mozzarella and a red sauce that I made. Um it was, uh, you know, it was easy and fun to do, and I stick my little 
AirPods in my ears and I just listen to podcasts while I do it. And uh, and when you like a meal, what we do is we draw we we do a big star on it and and explain like what people liked about it and we file that and then we can make that we can buy our own ingredients and remake the meals that we like later. So not just the two meals that we get a week from Blue Apron, but there's the diversity in our menu planning now because we've been introduced to other meals that we make thanks to Blue Apron. Uh, here's some samples of stuff that you could uh, you could cook with Blue Apron. I already mentioned the one. Uh, but here are a few other examples. Uh, cheddar cheeseburgers with onions and romaine salad. They always like to, it's not just like a single thing. They'll make sure you've got like a salad or some other side dish. That's a part of what they do. Uh, chipotle vegetable and farro salad with avocado and crispy tortilla strips. And let's say, hmm, let me find a vegetarian one, Stephen. Vegetable fried rice bowls with cauliflower, Guylan. And fried eggs, not for vegans, but vegetarian. They're a vegetarian. They're they have different things, and and your menu is customizable. So like we have some uh, some issues with things that we don't eat in our family, and you just go on their website and you pick the meals that you want to get. And if there's a week where you don't like what you see, you just say I'm going to skip this week, and they don't charge you, and then you just get you go to the next week. It's super fuss free. They deliver to 99 of the continental United States. Uh, and uh, the stuff you get will be fresh. You can cook it that week, and it will be very good. So get three meals yourself for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash liftoff. You will love how good it feels and tastes to make meals from scratch at home with Blue Apron. Blueapron.com slash liftoff. Thank you, Blue Apron, for sponsoring Liftoff and Relay FM. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Now I'm hungry. <laughs> well, uh, we have a show to finish before you can eat. Sorry. Oh, damn you, damn Sorry. you. This week we want to talk a little bit about the state of NASA and science in the United States. And uh, so we're going to move into that. And just a, a quick word, I know a lot of people are fatigued of uh, the politics talk, but that will be uh, part of this. the rest of this episode. It's kind of unavoidable, like Jason, like you said before we started you know, we we cover uh, NASA and other agencies, and NASA is a part of the federal government, which yeah, is it's, it, it is a fundamentally political thing because it's funded by the Congress and directed by the executive branch, and p- appointees run it. And then there's the you know, of course, the civil servants who are who are there. But it is a governmental agency, and you know, most space exploration right now is either being done by uh, government agencies or funded by by governments, right? That's where we are. So it's unavoidable to talk about politics when you're talking about uh, certain aspects of space. And since we are in this process of moving in the U.S. to we have a new administration and they're still getting their people confirmed and uh, making their choices, but uh, that's why this is our topic. So if you're somebody who is just absolutely allergic to discussions like this, whether it's because you're very angry when anybody says something that you don't agree with, uh, you know who you are, or if you're somebody who's just tired of hearing about it, be warned, we're giving you a little content warning up front that that uh, we are going to talk about this stuff because this is fundamentally a part of um, what makes uh, U.S. space policy go is the politics of it. So let's start with sort of science kind of broadly, and then we'll work our way towards uh, the, the space stuff. The, uh, the current administration, the new administration here in the U.S. has already taken on a lot of things around climate change and the, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. So some kind of big things that have happened is 
uh, whitehouse.gov, which is run by the administration, that the old website underneath the Obama administration had a, a large section of the site dedicated to climate change and how the U.S. was partnering with other countries to work to solve that problem, which, of course, is a, a very real thing. And uh, scientists on the whole agree that it's a real thing, but it has been removed from that whitehouse.gov website, which is troubling. Uh, that not, Yeah, not surprising. but No, not, not surprising, uh, but definitely troubling. And in this climate, huh, see what I did? The, mm-hmm. uh, the CDC, so the Center for Disease Control, which is has a, kind of a uh, – they are involved in climate change from the federal level because it does uh, bring with it health issues and sort of uh, issues that affect you know masses of people, uh, canceled the Climate Change Summit, which was going to be a – uh, a big meeting, people like Al Gore and others to discuss these things. Uh, and Al Gore said, you know what, you may cancel it, but I and others are still going to hold it. So they're having, I guess, like a rogue climate change summit, which I think is pretty awesome. Um, Al, Gore's, Al Gore is uh, from my state, so thumbs up Tennessee. Well, there you go. Uh, also invented the internet, maybe. So so that, all that's going on. Climate change has been uh, denied by uh, Republicans for a long time, and this administration is following yeah. in their footsteps. I, I would say by some Republicans, right? I mean, some this, Republicans. Is, this, is, this is also one of those cases where it's very easy to uh, to point at statements and say that they're political. And I think I think where both of us would come from is uh, from a scientific standpoint that like my disappointment is that climate change, which is clear, right, in all of the data and in 90, what, 99 point something percent of scientists, I mean, it is very clearly a real thing. So mm-hmm. to have it be uh, scoffed at and made a political like uh, line of demarcation between parties about a scientific fact is ridiculous. And there are yeah. people in <laughs> in in the Republican Party who do believe in climate change and there's a spectrum of like it's partially man-made it's entirely by humans uh, it's not it's a it's a it's a you know it's a not at all uh our fault uh there's a spectrum in there but it's unfortunate because let's just go back to the science of it the science of it is that it's happening and that we're responsible in large part so uh not everybody believes that uh in the republican party that it's a hoax but uh a lot of them do and it's sort of party policy and that is uh definitely seems to be being uh the approach of the trump administration Mm mm-hmm so do you want to tell us a little bit about what's going on with the EPA? Uh, yeah. So the EPA uh, has never been a popular agency uh, it, by uh, for Republicans, uh, which is funny because I believe Richard Nixon created it. But, you know, he was a liberal. Anyway, so <laughs> uh, they are doing lots of things immediately in terms of the EPA. This is one of those things. It's a little bit like if you ever saw the um, the TV show Parks and Recreation. One of the early jokes is that the head of the Parks Department is a, is a libertarian who believes there shouldn't be a Parks Department. And so he's appointed yep. and his entire goal is to do as little as possible. Um, one of my all-time favorite sitcoms. 
It is it is wonderful, and uh, Nick Offerman is great in that part. And of course, they flesh him out after that because you can't have a one note character like that forever. But um, but th- that's sort of what's going on here, which is this is uh, you know the uh, the Trump administration is deeply skeptical of the EPA and the and the usefulness of it in terms of climate change and other environmental regulations. They're trying to slash regulations, uh, and so there is a question about like what will the funding be for the EPA? Um, the EPA froze grants to states that the states rely on for. For um, for uh, various programs in in uh, communities in uh, on the state and regional level, and uh, there is some thought that there may be a plan to uh, to dramatically cut the number of people employed by the EPA, um, and that that goes to the the Ron Swanson kind of thing where um, they the the person who is on the transition team for the Trump administration for the EPA made a statement at one point that he felt that the uh, EPA could be cut by two thirds in terms of its staff to save some money. Um, I suspect it's not really just about saving money, but it's also about reducing enforcement of environmental regulations. And we can, right. you know, people can discuss that, but that that is definitely something that's going on. And the EPA and and uh, the guy who was in charge of the transition is a global warming denier. And EPA definitely, you know, car- one of the key things I think in in managing global warming in the U.S. in terms of laws and regulations is regulating carbon emissions as a harmful to the environment, which comes under the EPA. So it's all kind of mixed up. To Together. And this is one of those areas where uh, administration change means some dramatic changes in how the country funds and approaches stuff like uh, like uh, climate change. Yeah, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the House Science Committee, which is uh, headed up by uh, Repo- uh, Representative Lamar Smith of Texas. Uh, there's a picture of him on Vox wearing a cool headset. Yeah, which is fun. Uh, I think everyone should have one of those. And so out out of the stuff with the EPA, stuff with the climate change, uh, all, all that business, uh, the some comments that he has made specifically are are pretty pretty troubling. Uh, is mm-hmm. what I'm going to go with for, for lack so. of a better word. I wouldn't have to bleep. Um, and you know, it, part of this we're kind of sidestepping this conversation. Although you and I would be good people to have the conversation about journalism and the press under the Trump administration, because <laughs> uh, that's the other thing we're nerdy about together. It's just another podcast, not this one. <laughs> yeah, uh, lift off, but for uh, newspapers. Yeah, ink-stained, wretches podcast. Done. Yeah, I'll get Frank on the artwork. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot to be said about that for another show. But in this environment, in this conversation, uh, Smith is on the record for saying that uh, better to get your news directly from the president. In fact, it may be the only way to get the unvarnished truth, which is um, maybe the scariest thing I've read <laughs> in a long time on the internet. And uh, I spend a lot of time on the internet. <laughs> well, um, it's it's the idea that uh, that Lamar Smith seems to have, and he is a he is a climate change denier, and yep. is the head of the uh, House Science Committee. I mean, that's that's the bottom line here. Is is Lamar Smith has said and believes that. They're, uh, you know, when when they're in charge of government, that the government ought to be producing scientific results that are that that support conservative viewpoints. That and of course, I would say no matter what your party is, the scientific results don't care. Scientific results are meant to get to the truth, 
And then you can choose what to do with it, right? I, I, you choose, choose based on your political views. But to deeply misunderstand science willfully mm-hmm. or, or just out of ignorance and to have that person be the person who's in charge of the House of Representatives Science Committee for the you know, United States of America House of Representatives. Uh, it's, it's troubling, I would say, right? I mean, I, I, there, are, there are a bunch of very strong on science Republican representatives, but Lamar Smith of Texas does not seem to be one of them. No. And, and it, it really highlights for me the tension we have, and we, we spoke about it a, a second ago, where you have things like science and space exploration that have to exist and receive their funding and backing in a political system, right? Where it, in, I mean, you can see how it could be done other ways, potentially, and we're moving towards that with commercial crew and some other things, but the reality is that this stuff takes place within the federal government and it's funded by the federal government tax dollars. You know, Jason, you and I pay our taxes. I pay my taxes. I assume you do. Yeah, I do. Uh, good. Jason now. pays his taxes. Good. Got that on the record. That is, you know, part of the federal budget and, and you end up with this tension, right? Of things that seem, uh, from, you know, the outside perspective, so simple and like, you know, yes, this is happening and, but the politics kind of get in the way of it. And, and it's yeah, it's upsetting, but um. So I will give you a uh, a little bit of a positive note here, which is now the chair of the House Commerce, Justice, Science, and Related Agencies Appropriations Subcommittee, and I know that's a that is a mouthful, but that yeah, is you the need subcommittee. A, a style acronym for that thing. Yeah, I think they call it the CJS Appropriations Subcommittee, but it's uh, which needs its own acronym. Then, the, the, like that's the worst of all the acronyms. Is what does that letter stand for? It stands for a different acronym. No. <laughs> uh, anyway, the chair of the subcommittee. This is the subcommittee that funds NASA. And that, and we've talked about him before, is a fellow named John Culberson, who is a representative of the 7th District of Texas. So mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the colleagues of Lamar Smith. And he, he, is, a, he is a conservative Republican. He has uh, released a bunch of statements lately supporting uh, Donald Trump's moves for uh, immigration and things like that. But here, here, it's at least a little bit. He is a huge support supporter of exploration and planetary science in the solar system. He's the guy who keeps saying, uh, we're going to put money in so that you can build some uh, lander to go to Europa. Like He's like really into planetary science. Now, he may be, I actually don't know, he may even be a climate change denier. I don't know that. But this shows you how the, there are... It, you, there are lots of nuances. And this is what's going to come into effect when we talk about NASA later, um, that it's not as if you've got like anti-science and pro-science. There's a lot of detail, a lot of uh, something we said in a past episode about like not funding Earth science, but funding more solar system exploration may happen. But um, it's it's there. there's a lot of variance, even in representatives who are on various committees who are from the state of tech, Texas. You can see some variation in their attitudes and enthusiasm about uh, sort of scientific stuff. Uh, so we're going to round uh, this section out by talking about what some of the things that are happening within the scientific community. And uh, there's an article uh, on The Guardian. Uh, I found a bunch of articles about it, but like there's a lot about uh, scientists in the U.S. who are mobilizing and organizing a march for science. And so in the last couple of weeks in the U.S. have seen protests across the nation. There's one here in my hometown tomorrow night, actually. And uh, this is proposed for a march on Washington uh, talking about and bringing attention to you know, what we've been talking about, that science, things like global warming and climate change, 
space exploration, uh, there are things in these categories in these subjects that are just true, right? That are just true or just yeah. false. And and wanting to return to that saying, you know what, you, maybe it's time for politics to not play a role in these things, or maybe it's a time for different politics to play uh, a role in these things. And is, again, bringing attention to it, it's on the heels of the National Park Service being uh, banned from tweeting after talking uh, about climate change and some, uh, some other things. So there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, upheaval and a lot of action going on in this community. Uh, I read a thing that actually during the inauguration uh, that uh, scientists were like uh, working hard to back up their climate change data and and making sure that their stuff was available uh, offline if you know if published works uh, were suddenly to go away, like it did on the White House website. So it's I think for all of the uh, the talking that like people like you and I can do who report on this stuff that there is action going on within this community as well, and I think that um, a march on Washington for science would be uh, I mean. I don't know if we've ever seen anything like that before, right? Uh, it's, it seems like it would be a, a unique event and uh, for a community of, of people who um, I would imagine a lot of scientists don't don't really like that the, they have to play politics to a degree, but when when forced to, then they, they'll stand up for what they need to what, what they need to stand up for. Yeah. So uh, so there's that. So we're gonna talk about space, talk about NASA uh, in particular. Uh, but first, I want to tell you about our second sponsor, which is Ministry of Supply. We all know what it's like to spend over 40 hours a week in uncomfortable work clothing. Well, Jason podcast in his pajamas, but, you know. Yeah, I'm wearing pants today. Come on. There you go. There you go. Well, you have to go out after this. Recording yeah, early. that's right. It's a special day. Um, and, you know, uh, a lot of dress clothes, a lot of, like, work office clothes are restrictive. They're unbreathable. They're just not comfortable. You're all wrinkly by the end of the day. And Ministry of Supply fixes all of this because they make performance clothes for the modern day workplace. Ministry of Supply was launched by MIT engineers and they combine human-centric research, performance technology, and tailored design to create wear-to-work clothes for men and women like dress shirts, blouses, and pants. Their garments work with your body to provide maximum comfort combined with features like temperature control, wrinkle resistance, and extreme stretch to give you a sharp professional look all day long. Now, I have a couple of Ministry of Supply shirts. Uh, I'm a huge fan of them. I'm actually wearing one of their undershirts right now. And they have the uh, Future Forward dress shirt. And it has NASA-invented fibers that regulate body temperature based on your surroundings. So you don't end up all sweaty after a meeting and then cold in your next one. It it works with your body and not against it. And uh, these shirts are, are super awesome. I'm a huge fan of them. They look good and they're super comfortable. And they even make socks now. Socks are the uh, the new... Uh, land grab in 2017. I think we're going to do some liftoff branded socks maybe. That'd be fun. Oh, the yeah. smarter dress socks are made of coffee fiber that wicks sweat and absorbs odor. They provide extreme cushion with more padding than regular gym socks. So even down your socks, Ministry of Supply is super smart clothing. Ministry of Supply offers free shipping, free returns, and a 100-day no-questions-asked return policy. To find out more and get 15% off your first purchase, go to ministryofsupply.com slash liftoff or if you visit any of their nine retail stores including uh locations in san francisco atlanta or chicago and you mention this show you can also claim your 15 percent off thank you so much to ministry of supply for sponsoring this show and all of relay fm hooray so let's talk about the the transition uh, a little bit anytime as is happening all across the federal government a new administration comes in 
the top people at federal agencies are very often replaced. There's nothing new about that this time around that happens you know, yeah, politi- every four years, every eight years. Yeah, the top level management is generally political appointees. And so they serve at the pleasure of the president. And when a new president comes in, they all tender their resignation and the new president gets to appoint new leaders. And then there's a level below which they're not uh, political appointees, they're civil servants and they, they're they full time staff because you can't literally change every single employee of every government organization based on their politics every four to eight years. So that's the part that stays. And then there's the part that goes. Yep. So uh, NASA is in this transition like a lot of other federal agencies. Uh, but before we get into that, I think it's worth kind of recapping the last eight years a little bit. Uh, Obama's White House Office of Science and Technology Policy released a report looking back at the last eight years. Um, and uh, then Lauren Grush the Verge kind of uh, recapped that as well. And there's definitely some like big uh, highlights, I think, worth worth mentioning at this point. Uh, extending the International Space Station to 2024. Um, I don't remember what the previous year was. It was 2018, maybe? Yeah, so, I, think, I wouldn't say 2018, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think they added uh, added six years to that that mission. Uh, commercial resupply missions, so companies like SpaceX, for instance, bringing supplies, food, clothing, um, scientific experiments and measurements to the space station. Uh, of course, that's a big deal because America doesn't have a launch vehicle currently, and so they are uh, depending on commercial crew or uh, depending on commercial companies, I should say, to uh, to resupply the uh, space station. And then, of course, uh, commercial crew program, which is, um, you know, two-ish years away. It continues to slip, unfortunately. But sending astronauts to the space station from American soil aboard uh, private companies. Yeah, vehicles. I mean, we are going to look back on the Obama administration, uh, the Obama era, uh, in terms of space and view it as the end of the space shuttle program, which was coming to an end already. I mean, he was really administering the uh the 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 wind down of that after because after the Columbia disaster um it was clear that the safety issues I mean they weren't going to be addressed and they need to replace it with something else. Um so so it'll be the wind down of the space shuttle and the beginning of the gap that extended through the rest of his era and uh you know my gut feeling is that that is going to be viewed with, uh, you know, viewed negatively from the perspective of the future that, hey, did you know that the United States couldn't fly anybody into space for X number of years, however mm-hmm. long it is? And that and that uh, that run continues. Lots of good reasons for it. But uh, it, that 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 remains a fact. Now, the other big thing that happened uh, was what was going to come next, right? That originally the idea was that there was going to be a, uh, there was going to be a moon mission, I think. And there was the, the big constellation program and all of Mm -hmm. that. And the Obama, and and that was, that came out of the Bush administration and the Obama administration changed direction on that. Yeah. And, and introduced uh, the journey to Mars, which we did a whole episode on kind of (laughs) picking it apart in places. Yeah. Yeah. Um, reality check, fact checking. Yeah, episode twenty six. You can go back and check that out. Um, and that was u- reusing Orion, the capsule from the Constellation program, and then starting the the space launch system rocket. So, kind of reusing what was already underway, but then changing target. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if that Mars target remains intact 
under the new administration. There have been signs kind of saying yes, but also signs saying no. It's it's uh, hard to tell at this point. Yeah. Um, I think some other things uh, that kind of tie in with the Obama administration over NASA, you know, improvement of detecting near-Earth objects, which is important. If we're going to get hit by something, we'd like to know in advance. And then the asteroid redirect mission, which we spoke about a couple of weeks ago that probably won't survive the transition change. Right. Uh, that one doesn't seem real popular in the, on uh, under the new administration's watch, so that one may uh, may go away. But yeah, I mean, we're, we I don't know whether, whether we should talk about it now or later. But it, it seems like very clear that the Bush administration was like, we're going to go to we're going to go other places like Mars by going back to the moon first, and then we're going to use that as a jumping off point. And the Obama administration's take was, nah, we've been. I mean, Obama actually said at one point you know been there done that essentially about the moon and they they had this idea of like what if we go to an asteroid and we do we 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 redirect it and and we can and we can put it in orbit around around the moon and we can uh use that as a as a test for going to mars and it seems like the incoming administration is skeptical of this whole asteroid business and there's a question of whether they'll say, no, we're going to go for Mars or whether they're going to say, let's go back to the moon like we were planning under Bush. Um, it's kind of unclear, but there seems to be a whole lot of skepticism, I think, among uh, Republicans for the Obama administration's uh, enthusiasm for, for asteroids. Let's put it that way. <laughs> they preferred space invaders to asteroids when they were kids, something like that. So an acting administrator has been named uh, Robert Lightfoot. Took over when Charles Bolden and uh, David Newman left uh, the day of the inauguration on the 20th. And the agency's chief financial officer uh, has stayed uh, to help, I guess, kind of bridge that gap to whoever will replace him. And Lightfoot is uh, he's the highest ranking civil servant, uh, you know, career NASA employee. And that is apparently the tradition, uh, at least in NASA, probably as in other government agencies, that um, the the highest ranking civil servant takes over as the administrator um, between presidential appointments. So, you know, Charlie Bolden's gone, um, just like, uh, you know, I, and this happened the last time when Bolden was, uh, before Bolden was confirmed. Um, so Bolden's gone. Uh, Trump will nominate a new head of NASA. And until then, you have this basically highest ranking civilian who will make sure that everything still goes on in the meantime. The CFO is interesting. That's one of those cases where um, uh, they're saying, you know, that's a that's a political appointee. And it it may mean that they're happy with him. And it may mean that they are going to replace him with a different political appointee, but they don't want to lose momentum on NASA budgeting in the meantime. So let's talk a little bit about where NASA could go under the Trump administration. Uh, So far, Trump's really only mentioned the agency twice, uh, once in the inauguration speech saying, unlock the mysteries of space, which could literally mean anything. Yeah, but I I mean I I will say especially since Trump has has been heard before saying we should fix the potholes on earth before worrying right. about space stuff, which is his, yep. was his in the campaign. That's the other thing you're referring to, right? That he said about mm-hmm. space. So he hasn't said a lot about it. Um but uh, in the inauguration speech there was this line about unlock the mysteries of space. Not quite, you know, Kennedy-esque we're going to send a man to the the moon and all of that. But um, it is also notable, I think, that in an inauguration speech that was not particularly long and was very much focused on all sorts of other issues, that 
space got mentioned at all as, you know, essentially if it's in the speech, it's a priority for the administration. So, um, so I, I'm going to take that as an interesting idea that there is somebody um, in the Trump administration who is really into space and has opinions about it. And that person is steering that part of the uh, the philosophy of the of the administration. And we'll we will probably be seeing with the appointments and new directions where they're going with that. Yeah, I think I think you're right. It it jumped out at me in the speech that really wasn't so much about policy and like federal agencies that it made it made the cut for some reason. So um there are uh some some people who've been named to the transition team. Uh, Jack Burns who is from the University of uh Colorado. Uh he's a big advocate for returning to the moon, which See. again would kind of be more in line with what uh the Bush administration had had set forth. Uh, and then you have John Grunsfeld, who uh, is a retired astronaut, and he was uh, he retired also as the NASA chief scientist back in April. And he's been vocal against the SLS program and kind of in favor of the idea of, hey, just do a bunch of small launches and assemble spacecraft in, you know, in space and orbit and then go circle Mars and not land. So uh, kind of a very different approach than what Journey of to Mars has been about so far. And has even suggested that you could strip the space station budget to pay for all of this. So it's, I I, I don't think Journey to Mars will be canned, but I do expect that it will be uh, potentially significantly changed. That uh, it, oh, yeah. you know, maybe the moon is added back in as that intermediate step, which is something the Obama administration got rid of. Uh, maybe it's that it's not about landing a crew on Mars yet, but you know, they set their sights in orbit first. I mean, I think something will change. I just, it's really hard to kind of suss out what that would be at this point. Yeah. It's, um, look, we're all just spitballing here, right? We, we, we don't know. Um, we, we are all trying to read the tea leaves and see what the priorities are going to be. And this is one of those cases that is interesting, sort of like we were talking about with science stuff where, uh, in general that, um, there's no like, like the Democrats like asteroids and Republicans like the moon, right? I mean, that's sort of what we're saying, but I mean, it really is kind of up in the air. This is this is something that has not been politicized uh, and polarized to the same degree as so much else in our society. And so as a result, it's this question of like, what's the political will? What do they want to do? My gut feeling and the, uh, my gut feeling about why it was in the inauguration speech at all is that, um, you know, Donald Trump wants to make his stamp, right? As all presidents do, he wants to make his mark and be remembered and uh, and be impressive in terms of history and all sorts of things like that. And I do think that all the way back to Kennedy, that part of what happens with uh, presidents and space is that goal of a legacy. If they care enough to use space as a legacy, um, mm -hmm. to, you know, and I think, I think Obama took a very workmanlike approach to it. And, um, and, and there's, you can make arguments that a workmanlike realistic approach is good, albeit uninspiring. I think you could argue that inspirational approaches are good. Um, that's a discussion that people could have and that can be political or it can be apolitical. But in the case of the Trump administration, my gut feeling is that they're going to want to propose something impressive with goal setting and make it 
you know, make a make a, a mark in history books. So my gut feeling is that the new administration is going to say enough of this, you know, screwing around in low Earth orbit or talking about asteroids we we have a plan to go back to the moon and or we have a plan to go to mars and uh whether it's realistic or not and how they put that together um and what that means for the work that's been done and the money that's been spent up to now because part of this realistically is that the money is so there's so much money that goes into this stuff that you know it's unlikely that they're going to scrap it and build something new Instead, they're going to reuse bits that they've already got, but put it in a different direction. So that's my gut feeling is that they're going to do something dramatic, at least in terms of their overall goal, even if it is really like we're like what Bush did actually uh, in the 2000s, which is say we're going to go to Mars by 2030. Um, and it was li- like literally a four year roadmap and then a dotted line and then like Mars, like a cloud and then Mars. Um, (laughs) So it may be like that again, but I would expect something dramatic because quite frankly, I think that's all this administration does is like they want to make impacts and big picture things. And I I have a hard time imagining that NASA would be an exception to that. So it's also been reported that Mike Pence could oversee a reborn National Space Council, which was last used during the Bush administration. And basically its job is to oversee and coordinate civilian and military space efforts. So it could and would include how NASA uses corporations for current and future missions. So maybe some changes to the resupply missions or even to commercial crew. Uh, it'd be interesting to see that that body come back and kind of see see where it leads. But I mean, I guess the TLDR of today is there's change coming, but we're not quite sure what it is yet. Not, not quite sure. I mean, I, I think the existence of commercial crew is fascinating to me because that does line up. I, w- I would imagine that Republicans will embrace commercial crew as a concept, right? Because I think it, is, so. it is, you know, private businesses and they can talk about building private businesses that are they're working with the government and taking things off the hands of the government that the government doesn't have to do. That seems very aligned with the, the party worldview. Um, and, uh, I think, I think you see this a little bit in, in, uh, Elon Musk where he's like, you know, I'm sure he's got political opinions of his own, but at the same time he's got with Tesla, uh, some Syria and, and solar city, right? It's, they're like questions about government, government policy, about, about electric cars and about solar energy. And then with SpaceX, you know, it's a major, that that's, that's who pays SpaceX you know, for all this commercial crew stuff is all funded by uh, NASA. So, uh, yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see how that that all plays out, too. But but you're right. TLDR is uh, change is coming and we don't know what it is. So I guess over the coming months, we will give updates about what's going on uh, with uh, new directions at NASA. Yep. So if you want to see show notes for this week, we have a whole bunch of stuff in there at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 39. Uh, there you can get in touch. You can send us feedback via email or you can find us on Twitter. The show is at liftoff podcast. Jason is there at J Snell. And you can find me on Twitter as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.